We turn not older with the years, but newer every day. Welcome to Anthony Costello's Conversation at the Social Edge, episode four. Well, thank you for uh, joining me for my Social Edge Conversations. This is your in-depth magazine on our health, wealth and sustainable future. I hope you're interested in medicine, public health or nutrition, or perhaps in the politics and economics of sustainable development. And I'll give you the evidence, a great discussion and the tools you need for your own success. Now today, the big theme is health in in old age, healthy aging, integrated care for the elderly, and how to keep active and engaged to prevent all the problems of old age. I'm joined by John Beard, Director of Aging and Life Course at the World Health Organization, and also by Scarlett McNally, who is a, an orthopedic surgeon, but who has written a, a huge tome on the miracle cure of exercise for the academic royal colleges in the UK. Okay, let's start with my uh, global health and development roundup of uh, four pieces of news this week. Um, first is a big Harvard study published in Circulation, where they studied 123,000 volunteers to find out if they followed the five things you need to do to stay healthy, which are healthy diet, controlling your weight, taking regular exercise, drinking in moderation, and not smoking. Now, if you do those five things, they studied men and women who adhered to all of this, your life expectancy goes up by an extra 12 years for men and 14 years for women. Can you believe that? And the one of the leaders of the study, Maya Stampfer from, he's a professor of epidemiology at Harvard, said what was really surprising was how big the effect was. They, they weren't surprised that there was a bit of an effect, but that's really big. And it might explain why the US, which spends more on healthcare as a proportion of its national wealth than any other nation, is only 31st in the world for life expectancy, because maybe... Uh, the environment and the behaviors in the United States is just simply not good enough. That's the first one. The second, which is a bit shocking, but may not be as bad as it sounds, comes from Australia, from their ABC report. And this is a woman called Rachel Downey, who founded an anti-bullying website called Stymie, did a survey of 20,000 students over the last five years. And she asked them, what is something that you do on the internet at home that you know you're not allowed to do? So these are teenagers, right? Now, half of children, mostly boys, had looked at pornography. That doesn't totally surprise me. Um, One fifth of them said they had bullied, trolled or stalked for fun. Again, that sounds shocking, but Maybe it depends on your definition of some of these things. Um, but all, uh, well, 40% of children said they were doing too much social media. 30% said they're doing too much gaming. And WHO has actually recognized this year a new thing called internet gaming disorder as a mental health condition. And her claim is that we're just letting down all our teenagers. 
They're spending in Australia 33 hours a week online. Uh, 20% of the girls are pressured to share nude photos. That's pretty high. And 70% of the high school students she interviewed are sleep deprived because they're always online. Now, I mean, I know Australia is Australia and she says they're the biggest internet junkies in the world, but it does remind us that this needs really to be looked at. Um, I think the internet is hugely valuable, gives children the world over access to great information, but there is a downside to it. And I think we need to look at that more. The next one is good news, especially if you like eating chocolate. This is a randomized trial from JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, where they compared eating milk chocolate or dark chocolate on your vision. And it was a small randomized trial, only 30 adults. But basically, they randomly gave you either a bar of, uh, what's it called? Uh, Trader Joe's crispy rice milk chocolate or Trader Joe's 72% dark chocolate. And then they did all kinds of tests on your vision. Now, your eyes and your retina are the kind of window onto your brain and your circulation. And they did it as a crossover study, which means that three days after they did the first run, they then switched it over and repeated it all. And they showed very definite improvements in vision if you ate dark chocolate. Uh, they talk about contrast sensitivity changed and pretty significant findings, although it's a small study. And it's interesting because cho- chocolate has things called flavonoids in it, which uh, are very protective to your blood vessels. And they release nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. And another interesting observation is that off Panama, there is a group of Indians called the Kuna Indians, K-U-N-A, and they have incredibly low rates of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and cancer. And they all eat flavanol-rich cocoa every day. So I don't care whether this was a small study and has limitations. I am now going to eat dark chocolate with my porridge every morning. And I'll feel good about it. And I'll live much longer. Finally, if you live in France, I think this should worry you. Tiger mosquitoes, as the papers call them, or Edis albopictus as the uh, parasitologists and insect wallers call it, are spreading across more than half of France. And they carry diseases such as Zika, Dengue, Chikungunya, even Yellow Fever. Now, France has uh, had about uh, 1,200 cases of Zika virus. I can't find the data on if any have uh, been pregnant women who ended up with brain-damaged children, but it is a potential risk. Uh, the health authorities are urging you to use repellents if you go to southern France. And I think this is going to gonna be a bigger issue in future because Italy, France and Malta all have these mosquitoes. And, you know, with global travel and the like, I think it's only a matter of time before we end up with a little epidemic. So we have to uh, watch that very carefully. Right, that's my roundup for today. Um, but we're going to move on with our interviews. 
Okay, well, my first guest is uh, John Beard. Now, there are lots of John Beards. There's a Welsh artist. There's a, a, a newscaster in the United States called John Beard, an actor in Arrested Development, and a very famous John Beard from the 18th century who used to sing as a tenor and, uh, and performed Handel's oratorios. Uh, nothing like that. Just another Australian, I'm afraid, this time. My old uh, mate and sparring partner, uh, who is director of the Department of Aging and Life Course at the World Health Organization. So forgive us if there's a little bit of banter. But we were going to talk about the current situation in the world with aging and the elderly. Yeah, all right. So, John, really good to chat. Um, you published about nearly three years ago now a world report on aging and health. Uh, what were the kind of key messages from that that um, you could share with us? Okay, well, I think, uh, first of all, yeah, good to be here, uh, Anthony. Um, the world is rapidly aging, but many people still think that that uh, transformation is limited to high-income countries. And the first message from the world report was, in fact, this is a global phenomenon, and in fact, these days, the fastest aging is probably occurring in emerging economies, and, and even low-income settings are, are impacted. So this is an issue that's going to impact on all aspects of society, uh, and we need to think about how society should respond. And um, the problem has been up till now, our response has really tended to be inappropriate. It's often based on the assumption that, that there's such a thing as a typical older person. I mean, think, what does the term older person mean to you? And, and probably to all of us, we, we get an image in our mind and, and it's a stereotype. And up until now, policy has tended to try to cater to the stereotype what, rather than understand that in the 21st century, it's going to be very, very different uh, experience to, to age. Uh, and so what we what we tried to frame was, well, what are the things you can do uh, to enable people to age in the best possible way? And um, our focus was on health, but we wanted to think about health as much more than the absence of disease. So we framed our goal as enabling people to build the functional ability that uh, allows them to be and to do the things that they value. And then we set in place a whole range of, of different strategies which might help us achieve that. So, so very. I mean, you see aging as a much more positive process, but you made a point there about, you know, this isn't just in uh, high income countries that it's an issue, and that's very striking because life expectancy has changed dramatically, and with urbanisation, the one thing I notice is that in you know cities in Asia and even parts of Africa, that with the move to cities, you're getting a move from the kind of extended family that supported older people uh, through now to nuclear families. And so I guess you're getting more problems with isolation, even in what we consider low and middle income countries. Absolutely. I mean, aging is one of the biggest demographic shifts that the world's ever experienced, but it's not happening in isolation. Uh, the world is changing around people as they age, and so we see urbanisation, we see globalisation, and all of these complex systems interact. So just like you say, in China, for example, there's internal migration from rural areas to urban areas of young people looking for work. That disrupts the traditional social fabric. So in the past, an older person might have been able to expect that his family or her family would look after them as they age, if they require it, but those people are no longer there. 
Uh, and, and so, so we, we have, have to think, think about how all these changes are occurring together. So which countries are, would you say, are stars or, or really starting to think about this seriously? Uh, I, I think the, some high-income countries are thinking about it seriously. I know that China is actually thinking about it seriously. They're, they're trying uh, all sorts of experiments looking at how they can provide health care, how they can provide uh, long-term care. Um, I mean, certainly Japan, as the oldest country in the world, is really doing some uh, some interesting stuff, and they've moved uh, now to thinking about how can they focus around the older person within their community rather than just thinking them as individuals with individual complaints. So there's there's a lot happening. I have to say, I wouldn't call anyone a star yet. No, I mean that raises the whole issue of money. I know. <laughs> from our experience of working together, that your budget is pretty dismal um, uh, at WHO. And, I mean, most countries, are they spending the kind of money that they should be really thinking about uh, this problem, tackling it, and doing research on how you make uh, old people's lives much better? No, not at all. And, and this comes back to this whole issue of people have in mind that there is such a thing as an older person. And either they think that decline is inevitable and older people are a burden and we need to try and limit the resources we spend on them because we don't get anything out of them. Or they tend to stereotype them as, well, you know, older people are living longer and healthier these days and they should still be in the workforce. So we'll just simply raise retirement ages and that will solve the problem. The truth is that older people are all of that and more. They're just the, the, the sort of two ends of the continuum and we need much more complex responses. People don't understand that, and they think that you know there is a simple magic bullet. We don't really need to do any research to, to uh, uh, respond, but what we really need to do is invent a new future, and that requires investment. So there's kind of ageism everywhere at policy level, in in our social attitudes. Would you say all of us, including me? I. I Every day I realise that I am internalising ageist expectations. As, as you and I both know, some people confront mandatory retirement age, and as you do that, you start to actually think about your role in the world. I'm the Director of Ageing for WHO, and yet I still find myself thinking, okay, well, maybe it is time for me to go out to pasture. Uh, you know, and I never would have thought that except that society has created this way of thinking and this... Uh, institutional framework where there's an expectation that you retire. So all of us have inside us some sort of ageist uh, stereotypes in the way we, we think. Um, but unfortunately, the biggest challenge with that is that also then influences the way we act um, and uh, it influences the way policymakers develop policy. It influences the questions that researchers put so deeply embedded in us these outdated stereotypes of ageing actually limit our capacity to invent a new future. Yeah. So so when I worked with you at WHO and you were being abusive to me, it, I always thought it was because you were Australian and I was British, but in fact you were being ageist. Yeah, well, there was both, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. you, you, you are on and you are old, so you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't hold back. <laughs> um, so i mean just on the research front from your world aging report and stuff where, where do you think are the priorities for us to collect a lot more information and uh ideas about interventions to make 
life more tolerable for older people in, a, you know, at scale? Okay. I mean, look, it's just so vast. Let me give you a few key questions, which it, I get shocked every day at how little we actually know about this field. So first question, we know that people are living longer, that, that life expectancy is increasing. Are those extra years in good health or, or in bad health? Now, that's a pretty fundamental question that you would expect that we know. And people sort of think, well, 70 is the new 60. But in fact, we don't have the evidence to give us a clear-cut answer to it. So, so there's that population-level data. Um, there's then, okay, what could we actually do to influence those trajectories to ensure that people are living healthier as well as longer? And then we can ask, well, what is health in older age? Um, and as I said with the World Report, we tried to shift the focus of healthy ageing away from just being the absence of disease to looking much more at people's capacity uh, to, and their ability to, to do the things that they want. So how can we measure that in a way that's a continuum so that we can actually monitor people's progress and we can give people the, the, the information about their status that can help, help them manage their own lives? Um, you know, I could go on and on and as, we, as we do look at individual conditions, but the gaps are just enormous. Who are the world leaders in ageing research, would you say? Because I don't know many, I, offhand. The, the problem has been that most people who work in the field of ageing traditionally have been geriatricians and gerontologists. And that's in a fairly closed community. So the research that has been happening within there hasn't been as communicated as widely as perhaps it, it could have. Uh, and there's been good research in there, particularly looking at the question of, of what is it to be old, what's important for an older person, those sorts of things. Um, I think there's also some limitations in that research, um, but increasingly other specialist researchers are starting to get interested in the topic, but they don't actually understand those more social uh, nuanced questions about what it is to be old when they're framing their responses. And so they tend to look at comorbidities in older age, uh, but not look at the complex multi-system dynamics that result from those comorbidities or that they are part of. Um, and so what we need is uh, somehow to foster the connection between the people who are thinking about ageing and the people who are thinking in more technical areas. And so we actually get the breakthrough advances, which will help us answer the big questions. Uh, so I avoided your question. I mean, there's lots of people doing good bits and pieces. Uh, I wouldn't, again, say that anybody has got the whole picture and is really the, the, the guru that you should turn to for advice. I, d I did a bit of a review on, on looking at interventions for loneliness because that's a massive issue in, in old age. And, of course, as you say, most of the research done is all about disease. You know, doctors like diseases and morbidity and illness. But I was interested more in the sort of prevention promotion interventions at community level that would stop people getting into this mess, you know, around, you know, if you stop people being isolated and lonely, then you don't, you don't have such a burden of depression and uh, depression can exacerbate other long-term conditions and that. But I found remarkably little research done in this area. There is research happening, but it's small scale. And this is where we come back to the issue of funding. You know, the big research funders don't yet see these as critical issues uh, and are making the investments so that we can really get the, the answers. 
Although Australia came up with an interesting, they they didn't they pioneer the men's sheds movement. Uh, oh, I love them, Anthony. I mean, I mean you know, in in Australia, and uh, so I, I, let, let let me talk as an Australian for a moment. We have we have this um, idea that every man needs a shed. It's like a, a man cave that we can retreat to, where we play with with toys, and they may be work tools or things like that. You know, men traditionally expect them to make things, and we like to do it by ourselves. Yeah. So the idea of a men's shed is that you actually create a venue which has those tools, because no man can afford to have all the tools they want. And so men go to the shed to use the tools, and then we're forced to actually interact with other people, which is quite a shock to us, but... Um, we actually end up doing it and enjoying working together on joint projects. And then those projects are often linked to the broader community and so that we might work to make something for the local preschool together. Yeah. And so it's a really wonderful way of, of sort of not forcing men but uh, encouraging men to come together in ways that they probably otherwise wouldn't. And I think that's the sort of innovative way we have to think for our interventions for the future. No, I think it's great. And I mean, of course, Australians are much more Neolithic than any other people on the planet. And of course, in North London, we wouldn't have sheds to make chisel things or, you know, because you're you were fairly close to hunter gatherer societies, weren't you? In North London, we have coffee houses where people yeah. come together and talk about books and literature, you know, that kind of thing of coming together as old people. I was wondering in North London whether you even invented stone tools. So, you know, I... <laughs> <laughs> All right, we better move on because I think you beat us in the ashes, didn't you? So, uh, yeah, well, let's not talk about cricket, though. Okay, no. Oh, yeah, because you tamper with balls the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen, let's get on to the meat. Last week you released on Twitter, um, well, not just on Twitter, but I picked it up there, your Integrated Care for Older People guidelines. Would you like to say a bit about that? Yeah, so we have this whole program of work trying to uh, explore how we can realign health services to deliver the sort of care that older people need. And what we know is what they don't need is more of the same. What people currently get is you have a complaint or a disease is identified, and every one of those complaints or diseases is treated independently. You end up with multiple treatments, polypharmacy, and it all adds up to not having the best impact for the, for the person. And often you can end up with side effects and negative uh, sort of effects, which, which are avoidable. What's much better is if people have integrated care that's really focused around the needs and the aspirations of the older person themselves. Uh, so we call that integrated uh, care for older people. Um, and we have a program of work where we're currently trying to develop some assessment guidelines where we could uh, look at uh, what is an over, uh, the, the overall health of, of a, an old person and then how could that lead to different sort of mechanisms for integrated care. But in the meantime, what we have released is, are these uh, uh, guidelines uh, on community-level interventions that are basically very, very simple. Uh, and, and they look at how can you um, slow declines in capacity in older age. So, and I think one of the, the starting points for this is the idea that prevention is really important. Earlier in life, though, we tend to focus on the prevention of disease. So we try to encourage people not to smoke, to be active, and, and uh, so on, trying to prevent the, the development of usually non-communicable diseases, chronic diseases. But once you get into older age, once you get to about 65, 
most people actually have multiple chronic diseases, multimorbidities. And there we're still interested in prevention, but it's not prevention of disease, it's prevention of the declines that are going to be the consequence of those diseases. So you may have those conditions, but what can we do to actually prevent their impact on, on your capacity? Uh, and so we, uh, we've released these uh, guidelines, uh, evidence-based, and you know, for WHO, you're aware of how complex the process we have to go through to be able to, to say, to recommend a, a concrete guideline. And, and we're focused on things like musculoskeletal capacity, um, vision and hearing, cognitive capacity, um, urinary incontinence, which is, a, which is a critical issue for older people, how we prevent falls, and, and finally, how, how we can support caregivers who might be providing care to older people. So we're, we're not yet everything, but these were key areas which we thought were important, and we could provide some very basic guidance on what people could do to, uh, uh, to improve their, their, their functioning. You, two things that spring to mind about this is, one is the economic side of this, because older people consume a vast proportion of health budgets with all their comorbidities, their, you know, multiple illnesses and the like. So if you get a good system that's more integrated, you could potentially save a lot of money. And if you invest in prevention, then you're going to save a lot of money. That's one thing perhaps you could talk about in a minute. But the other thing to, to label is, is the climate change issues. I went to a meeting in Yale just a couple of weeks ago where they were talking a lot about reducing the carbon footprint of care. And a massive contribution to this is old people having to travel up to multiple appointments and this uh, kind of challenge of trying to redesign health systems now to be much more community-based and only going up to the kind of centres of excellence for specific things. Uh, anyway, what do you think about that? But start with the economics of it. Okay, actually, I'll start with one which you didn't mention, which is that uh, the expenditure on healthcare is actually an investment. If you make that investment, you expect a return. And the return of the investment in older people's health is, first of all, they hopefully experience good health if you invest in health systems. may not be the case, but you, you would hope so. Um, but also if older people can retain their health, then their ability to participate and contribute and continue their lives as they always have is, is enhanced. And so there, there's, a, there, there's a broader return for society. So I, I think it's, it's one thing to look at how we save costs for the healthcare system, but it's also a question of how we maximise those returns. Um, so that's number one. In terms of the cost of the health system, absolutely. Um, and what we also know is that as people age, yes, their healthcare costs increase, but it depends very much on which system you're operating within as to how extensive that increase is. Um, so if you're in a place like the United States where you have uh, fee-for-service provider-driven healthcare, um, the, the relationship between increasing age and increasing costs is much higher than in a different system. And I would, I would think the, the, the UK would be a, a classic example. Uh, and so we know that the UK spends less on healthcare overall than the US with very similar outcomes. But it, as population, populations age, you would actually expect that split to become greater. Um, so yes, there's definitely an impact we can have in terms of healthcare expenditures by providing better and more appropriate care for these people. 
The other thing that's important to factor in there is that as you get to a certain age, actually, healthcare costs start to fall. So in many countries over the age of 70, 75, that, 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 increasing, that increase of costs uh, slows. And often that's driven by the fact that they have alternatives. So, for example, there are long-term care systems. And so if you have a country which has a comprehensive long-term care system, which is much cheaper to deliver and probably more appropriate to the, the needs of people at certain stages of life, that the, the healthcare costs are going to be, or the, the, the demand for healthcare is going to be much less. And so we have to think of these two systems together. Uh, and you can't cut expenditure in one and not expect it to have an impact on the other. Uh, so that, so that. So this that, is integrated. Not, Health and social care. Exactly, uh, and and you know I I know that in some countries there's pressures to actually try and save money in terms of the investment in social care. They won't save money; they'll end up paying money because the the, the healthcare costs will right. be greater. So which uh, which just, country? Just basically shuffling the bucket that you, you're taking yeah. money from. Which? Uh, but and then on sorry, just before we move on, yeah. that the, yes, your I think your your climate change issue is probably also very true. Uh, and and uh, one of the things which we promote for integrated care of older people is to try and deliver the services as close as we can to where that person lives. Rather than build big centres which people have to travel to, let's look at how we can devolve healthcare so it's actually based and accessible where people live. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. I, I think I don't know of a study that's really looked at the carbon footprint of looking after older people on a population level under a current system and then under a more devolved system. That would be a very interesting comparative study. I would have thought the World Bank and uh, economists should do something on that. Um, no, that sounds great. But, I mean, I'd have to say, Anthony, in terms of the, 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 the extent of things that impact on climate change, um, this is probably not a major one that we need to tackle. No, but uh, I was surprised to learn that uh, 11% of all U.S. Uh, carbon emissions come from the health sector, which is which, not not insignificant, but I take your point. But finally, yeah. just on, I mean, I'm at that you know age where my mother is 94. She's living with my sister now. Um, I've got an aunt who's 95, uh, my friend round the corner, I'm going to see his mother later today, she's 103. Um, you know, we, uh, with people living so old, families are under, you know, you get rid of your children, suddenly you've got your parents to worry about. And um, that's a big issue. And of course, when you get, well, my question is about dementia. So my mother has... Uh, some element of vascular dementia, lost short-term memory, uh, but actually can have a pretty good conversation about longer-term stuff. And then, of course, the burden of Alzheimer's. Um, and, you know, I know quite young people with Alzheimer's in their 50s and 60s. What What's new, just to finish on this, what's new in the whole dementia field right now? Is there any cause for hope around Alzheimer's or prevention of, you know, risk factors for particularly vascular dementia? Okay, well, there's things we know that can reduce, uh, well, the risk of vascular dementia, but which can also impact on the 
degree of other dementias, and, and they, are, they are all the cardiovascular risk factors, so that if people eat a healthy diet, physically active, and so on, don't smoke, and, and those, those things will uh, have a positive impact on their cognitive function. And I don't think that message is spread out enough. Uh, and that's if, even for, for people who may be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, those things can actually have a positive impact on, on the progress of that condition. Beyond that, I'm afraid we're a long way from any simple um, uh, treatment. Uh, and uh, I think what we, what we need to be doing in the meantime is ensuring that the systems of care we put in place actually allow people to live lives of meaning and dignity despite the fact that they may be developing dementia. Uh, and I think there one of the, the key issues is also the stigma that comes to the condition uh, and the fact that if you have a, a relative who's diagnosed with dementia, you actually don't see them in the same way as you saw them before you were told about that diagnosis. Before the diagnosis, they were a bit de, de, you know, forgetful. Um, after the diagnosis, you actually often tend to um, no longer view them as having the same um, capacity uh, that, that you, you thought about before. And so I think that the, the programs also on how do we reduce stigma are very important. And there was a great one in the UK a few years ago. I saw an ad where there was a woman who, who had uh, dementia and she talked about her life and then at the end she actually turned to the camera and said, um, yes, I have dementia, but I still have a life. Uh, and I think somehow we, uh, if we want to have some advances until some form of treatment or, or cure comes comes along, that's where we need to be focusing. Just a final thing. When I look at all the kind of research around dementia, it's all about treatment, trying to find a magic bullet to deal with plaque in the brain. And I, I do wonder whether that's, uh, you know, the causative agent or whether it's just an associated agent. But then you read the figures on prevention and promotion that would stop uh, or delay the onset of dementia. And we've got very little going on, the sort of social stuff to cut smoking, cut drinking, uh, more activity, all these kind of risk factors for dementia. Do you think we should be doing more uh, trials on the uh, social and behavioural aspects of dementia prevention? Absolutely, and I also share your thoughts on uh, on plaque. I mean, I think we we've sort of looked at something that's uh, that might be uh, associated with the development of the, of the underlying condition, but which isn't actually in the line of development of the condition. And, and uh, I think that might have sidetracked researchers for a while. But uh, I mean, there is, the good news is that in the UK, uh, there's actually quite strong evidence that. Uh, cognitive declines are occurring later than they used to. And uh, part of that is because probably early child development, education, whatever, helps you reach a higher cognitive peak, so there's further to fall. And part of it is probably due to uh, changes in cardiovascular risk factors, which are reducing the, the, the cardiovascular impacts on cognitive function. Uh, and, and so I, I think there is hope, but... Yes, there's heaps we can be doing more in that field, which can give us much more hope and, and, and in, even increase further those trends. Right. Thank you. I'm going to come back to you from time to time because I think this is such an important area. I know you've got to go off to the WHO cafe and talk about how to tamper with cricket balls. 
and, you know, what you do in your sheds, because that's what Australians do. But um, it's been really good to chat to you. You you can come back to me with some abuse before we finish. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's been been great great to chat, Anthony. I'm happy to chat again. I miss your disruptive influence here at WHO. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, well, look at my... um, (laughs) I sent a little letter to The Lancet that was published this morning on the Global Fund. You might be interested. I will go straight there after we finish. (laughs) All right. Anyway, thanks ever so much. Keep well. I hope everything's going, going well with the transformation. Yeah, it's, a, it's um, a wonderful experience. <laughs> All right, keep well. See you later. Yeah, cheers. Okay, next up, it's Scarlett McNally, and we're talking about exercise, and especially in the elderly. Right, Scarlett, you're a, a surgeon, right? An That's orthopedic right. surgeon from Eastbourne. But we're going to talk about exercise which you call the miracle cure and you published a fantastic report on this coming out through the academy of royal colleges is that right that's right that's right exercise the miracle cure and the role of the doctor in promoting it and this um, we published in 2015 from the academy of medical royal colleges so that's one representative from each of the colleges Um, i was from the Royal College of Surgeons of England, a paediatrician, obstetrician, anaesthetist, all those sort of people around the table. It was from the Health Inequalities Group. Uh And what we worked out when we were looking into health inequalities is that there are huge differences in health between different social groups around social deprivation. And that has a much bigger impact on someone's years living with ill health than anything else. So we were looking into not only how to measure it and how to advocate for patients, but what what we can do to make it better. And it comes down to what Marmot, in Marmot's report, called the proximate causes. So um, smoking... The causes of the causes. The causes of the causes, that's it. Um, Smoking, physical inactivity, uh, poor nutrition, alcohol and drugs and pollution. And those are the kind of five big things that cause most of the differences in ill health and equally most of the, um, the, the most of the NHS spend is on conditions that have a large preventable component if we could improve on those areas of smoking, exercise, diet. Let's, just for a moment, let's stick, stick with the exercise bit. Yes. Because... There's a lot of stuff at the moment that exercise doesn't really change obesity much, but you've got a table here in your report, which I'm going to put linked to the podcast, evidence of improvement in health for those with uh, chronic conditions and the scale of improvement. So just a few percentages here. So the percentage reduction in a person's chance of developing each condition, uh, all-cause mortality, that's death, 30%, heart disease, 40%. Hypertension, 50%. Uh, type 2 diabetes, 50%. It's only obesity. Obesity is 10%, but that's not insignificant. Well, the, in my view, obesity has been measured and talked about, and um, exercise plays a good part in obesity, both in preventing and managing your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but more needs to be done around 
diet with obesity. Um, and in one way, we need to move away from obesity and look at all the other things. Because right. the figures you haven't mentioned, I'm yes. just saying, is dementia. We're yes. all terrified of dementia. 30%. You can reduce your risk of dementia by 30% with a fairly moderate amount of exercise. So that's um, 150 yeah. minutes a week of moderate exercise, You know, going out for a brisk walk or a cycle ride um, or swimming, something like that. 150 minutes a week, so maybe five times a week for half an hour or you cycle to work and then cycle home, something like mm. that reduces your risk of ever getting dementia by 30%. But even before that, I mean, the, the commonest health problem in the world is mental health, is depression, actually. And that mm. I see here is another 30% impact. If you exercise every day and take a proper, you are diminishing your chances of anxiety and depression. And we all know that. Indeed. Well, most well, people don't know that. I think people don't realise the scale of improvement in health with exercise. So we've got huge numbers of older people living with multiple conditions. And most of those conditions have a large element that's preventable and a large element that you could improve with exercise. So um, there's primary prevention, as in never getting it. So if you exercise regularly, you've got 30% less chance of ever getting dementia or ever getting depression. Um, but if you've got a condition and you go out and exercise, you improve how your body manages. So if you've got type 2 diabetes, you're less likely to have an amputation um, if you exercise than if you right. don't. And similarly, if you've got cancer, you're less likely to have a recurrence of that cancer if you exercise than if you don't. Oh, really? Indeed. Um, particularly bowel cancer is... is um, that the um, science, the numbers are available most for, but even breast cancer, you reduce your risk of ever getting breast cancer by 25% if you exercise regularly. Um, that's primary prevention. That's primary prevention. Yeah. And you improve your health um, once you have a condition. So what we're seeing in the NHS is um, millions of people living with multiple problems. Um, and you could reduce how many problems each person have, and you could improve how well they manage with each condition if we could get people to do more exercise. Right. So could we? I just want us to focus down a bit onto particularly older people because that's the theme this week. And again, if you look at you're an orthopedic surgeon and you yes. work at Eastbourne, yes. so presumably you have a very large elderly population down there. Yes. It's a seaside coastal town, it's, a lot of elder people. It's a lovely place to live. Yeah, Sunshine, fantastic. seafront. <laughs> but actually, in the country as a whole, only around 10% of people aged 70 get enough exercise. And the, the other 90% are putting their health at risk by not doing enough exercise. Now, this is fascinating. Now, just again on the stats, yeah. I'll just read them out for people. If you exercise cut your low back pain by 40%. And I know that because, you know, in the old days, you were told if you've got low back pain to lie down and rest and take Valium for two weeks. But now I know that if you start getting twinges in your back, the thing you should do is exercise. And actually, that was, so that's one, 40%. Osteoarthritis, 50%. Amazing figure. Falls in the elderly. So one of my yes. close relatives has had a lot of falls recently. She's in her mid-80s. 
But it's a kind of catch-22 because then she doesn't exercise. Mm. But actually, we're trying to get her to exercise more yes. because then you prevent that. And just a couple of others, osteoporosis, which is a massive issue, particularly for older women, yes. I think, 40% reduction and major fractures, 50%. I mean, these are staggering effect sizes. Yes. If this was a drug, it would be a miracle cure, wonder drug. It would be on the front page of everything. But because it's free, perhaps it doesn't have the value no. or doesn't get marketed in the same way. Um, and the, it has massive win-win effects throughout. So you, you mentioned people with falls. Mm. Um, something like a third of people over 65 fall every year, as in a significant fall that takes them to hospital. Um, in Eastbourne, we have large numbers of people with a hip fracture right. every year. And as the report says, 50% are preventable. With exercise, it's very difficult. You can't go back to someone and blame them. No. It's about trying to make the future better. So if you exercise, your muscles are stronger so that you can get up and down, out of chairs and so forth. You're more likely to want to get outside. You build mm. up the strength of your muscles, less likely to fall. You've got um, better bone strength. So if you do fall, you don't break something. Right. Um, so it's a win-win, really. No, absolutely. And post-operatively, um, how long does it take, if you're in your sort of 70s and 80s and you have an operation like for a hip or a shoulder, um, often people are slightly shocked at how bad they feel afterwards. How long in your experience do you need to convalesce in order to get back to that sort of muscle status that enables you to where you get where you were? Okay, convalesce isn't a word we, we try Sorry. using anymore. I'm just saying... What, What's the word? You, rehabilitation, is it? No. Yes, rehabilitation's yeah. good, but... Um, Say after a hip um, operation, you're far more likely to get through the operation better if you're fit to begin with. That right. has the biggest right. impact on whether you get out of hospital alive, to be fair, yeah. and whether you survive a year. Um, and getting someone up so they sit out of bed the next day, so they take a few steps with the therapists right. and build up their exercise is really good to get going. With any operation, with any orthopedics, you, you think about six weeks, you know, you break a bone, you've got six weeks of mm. having to be careful and do certain exercises as instructed, but you're far better off getting up and walking. Now, I've I got Fellowship of the College of Surgeons in 1994. I've been doing orthopedics for, what's that, that's years, nearly 25 years. Mm. And the changes in my um, career um, have been massive with people with hip fractures because we get them up, we get them walking, we treat them kind of aggressively, actually. That yeah. They've got to get up, they've got to get going because that has you have your best chance of health. If you stay in bed, you're more likely to get pressure sores, chest infections, urine infections, and just feel bad and get constipated. You know, and we, so I just want to come on to two final things. One is, and I know you've written a paper on this, the uh, impact on social care and the huge, I mean, we're talking about massive savings here. I mean, the amount of our health and social care budget going on elderly people who are relatively immobile is astonishing. And so if we could fix that with preventive things, we're going to save a lot of money. That's one thing I'd like you to say. But the other is, as medics, what should we be doing and what would work more to really get populations mobile? This is a, I mean, it's not exclusively a medical problem, but in your experience, what do you think we should be doing more of to get older people realising that they should move? Okay, the first thing about the impact on social care, it is massive. 
Um, I was lead author for a BMJ paper in October 2017. You can still find it on the BMJ. Now I'm going to put it on the podcast so anyone listening to this Perfect. can get it on my site. So um, basically, we're people needing social care, each one is assessed for how much they need. And it's based on what you can do and what you need someone else to do. Um, in the UK, we spend about £100 billion on social care. Now, some comes from local government, some comes from the person themselves selling their home to pay for social care. It's almost the entire National Health it's, Service It's budget. equivalent. It's just slightly less than the entire yeah. National Health Service budget, <laughs> exactly. Um, but what people don't realise is you don't get old and get frail. They're two different processes. You get old, you get saggy skin, and your hearing goes a bit. But actually, getting frail is optional and you can reverse it that's what we put in our bmj paper if you get up and move you can reverse your um weakness you can get up if it really is use it or lose it we need to get people up and get people going and that will re- reduce their level of frailty ability to get out of a chair that kind of thing um to the level of someone 10 years younger so you can drop a decade i think it's, um it's been called but we need people to feel they can do it and we need society and culture to welcome that and expect it because it's actually quite difficult to take the first few steps and get going so to answer your other question about what we need for everyone to change we need individuals to know that it's really important this is the best thing they can do for their health and will help all of their conditions do they have to join a running club or anything or is it just walking literally get up start walking and then build up you need to be a little bit out of breath a little bit like you're doing exercise yeah. for it to brisk work. It's not, it's, yeah, exactly. It's not just a stroll. So there's the brisk walking, get up and do something else. Now, actually, because of the way our brains work as you know, human mm. beings, um, it's better if you sign up for something with friends or tell your friends you're going to do it or set yourself a target because otherwise you just won't when it's raining. And we need it to be every day. This is music to my ears because uh, I've written a book called The Social Edge, which is all oh. about sympathy groups and all about and it will come out later this year. But fundamentally, I think it is about the social function. That if you're with people who yeah. walk, uh, friends, neighbours, family, indeed. you're more likely to do it. And, and it's fun. Indeed. And if you sign up to a charity walk, charity runs, charity cycle, it's not... Park runs. Exactly. Park runs. Fantastic. That's social together. If you're committed to it, you'll do it. If you're not committed, then you won't have that ability to get out and, no, and carry I, I, it through I agree with that. O- over time you need to build it into a habit we can build good habits like you can build bad habits but we need the other thing we need is infrastructure because for people to cycle for example um we need safe cycle routes somewhere they can put their bike and for people cycling more than three miles somewhere to get changed if you need to and somewhere to leave your wet weather gear but once you've got the practicality sorted mm. people who cycle to work are healthier and happier and have fewer days off sick. It is another win-win, but we need to get the infrastructure in there so that it's People feel safe and and cycle lanes. People feel safe, exactly. I mean, we've just been in a meeting, haven't we, today, talking about this and about, and there were quite a few government policy people there, and they were saying that they're changing the, the, gradually, particularly with mayors and cities, that, People have, uh, are putting in some of that infrastructure. I don't think they're moving fast enough or being ambitious enough. But you really want to separate uh, cars from cycles. Uh, and for older people, I mean, I've just lived in Switzerland for three years and I bought an electric bike. Now, okay, they're more expensive, and all that, but it was fantastic. It's faster than cars. 
It means if you're not particularly feeling energetic, you can turn up the power and get there. But if you are feeling energetic, you, you pump iron, you know. And anybody up to the age of 85 can do this. Rather than having a mobility aid, have an electric bike when you're 60. I, I completely agree. Electric bikes are fantastic because they, they take that edge that might just stop you doing it, that hill you can't manage exactly. or something. And I think they're fantastic. And actually, you know, what's money for in a way? Um, yeah. You know, a tank of petrol is 60 quid, depending on the size of your vehicle. Um, you don't have to pay for so much heating at home when you get in if you've been cycling. I know, I come in and always think the house is too hot. <laughs> There's all sorts of other win-wins. And what, you know, to be fair, what are you going to spend your money on? If you're going to need a um, live-in carer, you oh. need... That's going to be... 1500 a week. It depends your part of the country, but... Well, no, 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 no not for a living, but... You know, yeah. you, you're spending, I don't know, a few hundred pounds per week, um, and in a nursing home, it's on average £34,000 per year, depending on the part of the country. Really? Um, you have to... You know, it's 2.5 whole-time equivalent yeah. people to look after every one person who is only infirm because they didn't get up and do something five, ten years ago. That... It's just... It's really sad. We spend far, we spend a lot of the budget on trying to help people's health needs, when we could put in a fraction of that to get society better, so people can do more. And so, doing more is the critical thing. To so if you, if you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. I think that is a fantastic message, and you're never too old never to, too to old. move a bit more. Yes. Yes. And the benefits are fantastic. And the benefits are instant. Benefits are instant, particularly yeah. for mental health. They... Oh, final thing. Fitbits or 10,000 steps a day, because I, I get dragged out to do my 10,000, and I do manage it roughly these days, and it has improved my walking and stuff. Um, is that, do you think, is there a good evidence base for that? Uh, well, well done on getting out and doing things. Um, <laughs> the, the critical thing is everybody needs to find their thing that keeps them going yeah. when they might otherwise stop. Yeah, I agree. Because it's so easy. It's like that January gym membership. You know, it's yeah. so easy just to stop, but you, you need to have something that keeps you on track, yeah. literally. Thank you so much. This has been really useful, and uh, I think your interview is going to really complement what John Beard told us earlier from WHO, and uh, let's keep exercising. It's All been right. a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Thank Bye. Okay, great advice from Scarlett McNally. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you know someone who might benefit from this podcast, please do tell them. Help us to grow our community. And do check out or sign up to my blog at www.antonycostello.net. If you sign up, you'll get an email every week which links to the blog or podcast. Have a great week. Bye.